It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. boys and girls we are back with another edition of the ben dominich podcast brought to you by fox news you can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com i hope you will rate review and subscribe to this one today we have a conversation with henry olson columnist for the washington post he is one of the most astute smartest most uh, uh, kind guys also within the realm of political analysis that I've ever known. I disagree with him all the time about ideology, but I agree with him all the time about analysis, meaning that I'm all the time having to say to him, Henry, what you're saying, what you're recommending, it's wrong for the country. We shouldn't go in this direction or that direction. And also you're right about how it's going to play politically and you're right about the candidates that you are analyzing, Uh, which means that we have great conversations all the time. Uh, Henry is going to guide us through everything that happened in the primary season. Uh, And there are a lot of lessons to take away, both about uh, the interactions of Senate candidates with Mitch McConnell, with Donald Trump, uh, with electoral fraud and a number of other issues. He also gives us some insight generally on the direction of populism in the world. Henry Olson, coming up next. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Henry Olson, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks for having me, Ben. We have essentially gotten through the primary period for the Senate races and for a number of other races across the country. And we're in this sort of weird stage where we're adapting to the new ground in front of us that leads into November, where all these campaigns are having to adjust and reframe their messaging in accordance with the new challenges in front of them. I'm curious, you've written a number of different columns about your takeaways from uh, this primary season. What are your overall kind of top lessons and storylines coming out of the experience uh, through the summer? Yeah, I would say on the Democratic side, it's received a lot less attention, but continued strong showing by progressive left challengers in open seats or to primary uh, incumbents. Uh, Still a civil war going on on that side, and that pushes the party to the left. It makes it impossible for President Biden to shift or pivot to the center, which might be the optimal general election strategy. On the Republican side, we have a a strong record by President Trump that his endorsement in seriously contested races often provided the difference. Uh, He couldn't drag weak candidates over the line. He's not a god, but uh, on the margin, it was better to have him in your corner than not. And as importantly, the center of the Republican Party is distinctly on the populist conservative side, which is to say old style Republican candidates who haven't adapted by adapt, talking about fighting, talking about cultural issues over cutting government, 
those old line candidates tended not to do very well. Uh, that pretty much even the non-Trump people who lost to Trump back challengers echoed many of the same themes. And that tells you where the energy is in the Republican primary electorate. What was the biggest surprise coming out of the uh, primary season for you? I think the biggest surprise was the massive repudiation Georgia gave to President Trump. I wasn't terribly surprised that Brian Kemp won his uh, battle with former Senator David Perdue. I was shocked he won by 50 points. And I think that showed that in that state, uh, you had a large number of people who simply did not want to go down the election fraud raffle. And you had a number of independents and former Republicans who are willing to cast votes in the Republican primary to bolster the support of hardcore Republicans who also did not want to go down that rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. I think that was the single most surprising result of the primary to me. So I have a theory about this election fraud uh, dynamic and the way that people talk about it. Uh, and I want to bounce it off of you, which is basically, I mean, it's not rocket science, but uh, talking about election fraud is something that can boost you and can be a signal to the electorate about your stance generally within the context of a Republican primary. But that the more that you talk about it after a Republican primary, it could actually hurt you, meaning not so much that it turns off independent voters, but it means that you're not talking about the issues that are a priority for independent voters, it meaning inflation, the economy, the standard kind of list of, of top three issues uh, that people talk about, even border issues, for instance, you know, coming before that in terms of the way that people typically grade it out. And I think that that's going to be a, a, a particular problem in states like Arizona, where you have Blake Masters, Carrie Lake, and then a litany of, of down ballot candidates who essentially, uh, you know, you have uh, uh, getting, achieving their election based on a lot of complaints about election fraud, but they're headed into a primary, uh, headed into a general where they've got to win, you know, almost as many independent voters as they had to win uh, to achieve that Republican primary victory. Uh, and that that would prevent them necessarily from being able to talk about some of the other issues that those independent voters care about a lot more than election gripes about 2020. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think you're generally right. You know, the one caveat is we don't yet have evidence on that because, of course, the general election campaign is carrying out. But there's really no evidence that independent voters care about this stuff. They don't care about the Democrats attempt to make the Republican Party into the anti-democratic party. They don't believe that. And they also don't care about the Republican MAGA enthusiasts attempt to make the Democratic Party into cheaters extraordinary and hence uh, anti-democratic. They don't believe that either. So the more you talk about it as a Republican, the more you do not address the concerns that independent voters actually have. I think in Arizona, it's going to be particularly difficult for these candidates to pivot away from it because they've, a lot of them have really thrown in, you know, like Carrie Lake, the gubernatorial candidate, just can't stop talking about mm -hmm. the voter fraud uh, lie. And she's running against the former or the current secretary of state, the person who is nominally in charge of the election process. 
So it's it's very difficult for her to run away from all of this in the election. I think other candidates in Arizona will try to do that, and we'll see whether they're able to successfully pivot. Let's talk about money for a minute. Blake Masters came out on Friday uh, and uh, encouraged uh, uh, Mitch McConnell to get involved in his election, even you know, said some nice things about him, which is a pretty rare thing for a primary candidate in any state, um, you know, about, uh, oh, yeah, I know he's done some good things as leader. Maybe I could work with him. And that, to me, seems like a pivot to uh, a position where basically these campaigns are realizing we need help from the traditional Republican architecture. Uh, and uh, and that's something that we need in a lot of different ways. You saw the McConnell machine go in behind J.D. Vance in Ohio. He had a terrible fundraising round in the last quarter where he raised essentially about a million dollars. Uh, and I mean, it was just you know pathetic for a Senate candidate. Uh, and you saw the you know McConnell machine go in with a huge dollar amount. Why is it that former President Trump isn't going in and putting money behind these candidates who he essentially helped put in the position of being the nominee in multiple key battleground states? I think because Trump is selfish. And yeah, <laughs> Trump, Trump endorses these people for his own selfish reasons. He lets them swim and sink and swim on their own. When he was into putting his political capital on the line. He wasn't putting his capital capital on the line. He wasn't spending $2 million on behalf of J.D. Vance in the primary or $5 million on behalf of Blake Masters. He, he likes to have influence on the cheap. I think he's hoarding his cash for his own purposes, whether it's to run in 2024 or whether it's to pay his legal bills or for whatever reason. Um, so uh, I, I think just recognizing the core selfishness of the mayor of Mar-a-Lago and moving on from there helps explain a lot of this. Do you, do you, do you think that that's short-sighted politically? Yes, I think it's short-sighted politically, but uh, this it's exactly the way Trump has operated. Uh, he, you know, I think, put yourself in Trump's position, that this is a guy who decided, never having really been in politics, to run for president in his late 60s, and everybody who is supposed to know something about politics tells him he doesn't have a chance. And he wipes the floor with all of these people in the Republican primary. And then they say he can't win against Hillary Clinton, and he does. And then he can't say that he's not going to win the reelection. And in his mind, he did. But let's mm -hmm. take a look and say, look, this is a guy who actually energized millions of new voters in the to come over to the Republican side and barely lost uh, in the Electoral College. I think he looks at it and is uh, decided that um, he doesn't have to listen to the traditional ways of doing things. He's operated quite well outside of the traditional way of doing things. And I don't think he's going to change. Mm -hmm. The uh, Obviously, he only spent in a couple of different places. One of the places that he did spend uh, was to beat Liz Cheney, uh, understanding, I think, the uh, the optics of that situation. Obviously, the uh, D.C. Beltway media has been obsessed with the idea of Liz Cheney being this foil and, the, you know, this uh, thorn in the Republican side going forward. To me, I feel like she did a, a very short sighted thing herself that, uh, you know, there are a number of other people who have uh, maintained their critiques of of the president, now former president. Uh, without losing their seats or being able to navigate uh, certain political situations. Why do you think she made the choice 
to go down with the ship to to essentially lean in so hard to this idea of of the January 6th committee or anything else that it would end effectively her political career. No one really believes that she has any kind of a shot at anything going forward. And most people assume she'll end up being a contributor to some other network that gets a lot less viewers than Fox. Yeah, you know, I, I don't want to put myself in her head because I don't know her, mm-hmm. but it is a very odd choice is that uh, she decided that not only was she going to lean into that, she was going to refuse to make any accommodation with the Republican Party voter opinion where it is. You know, she's made comments about how she can't really stomach Ron DeSantis. She called uh, the House Republican Study Committee chairs Jim Banks' memo on uh, working class republicanism. Um called it uh, Marxist and was reported to have called it Marxist. You know, so look, this is a woman who seems to want to be stuck in amber in the 2004 Republican Party. And and I I get there are people who want that, but it you can't make fetch happen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> Henry Olson with the timely Mean Girls reference. I I have to say that that to me is kind of the measure of the Trump critic if they're serious or not. Is if they if they take the next step and say, well, Ron DeSantis is just as bad, then I I just don't think you're worth listening to, because that means that you've gone beyond this sort of. Uh, Trump is some uniquely crazy person, threat to the republic, threat to the democracy, et cetera, into, well, any kind of Republican who engages in any kind of populism or any kind of, you know, conservatism that doesn't fit, you know, my strictures is is of the same kind, of the same class. And to me, you know, it, it, every Republican in the country should be able to re- support Ron DeSantis without any kind of hesitation. Um, at least that is my kind of measure of whether you, to take you uh, seriously or not. I don't know if you share the same. Uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I think Ron DeSantis. I've been saying for years, as you know, you know that the the center of the republic, the future of the Republican Party lies in moving in a more populist direction, mm-hmm. and Ron DeSantis has become the symbol of a populist conservative synthesis. Uh, with his actions over the last two years. So if what you're saying is not just, I'm not thrilled with him or my first choice is Nikki Haley, but as Liz Cheney says, basically he's beyond the pale, he's a threat. Um, that just shows you don't want to be a Republican. Okay, yeah. I get it. You don't want to be a Republican. <laughs> Go leave us alone. <laughs> so um, Henry, uh, just to return to the primaries for a moment, I, I'm impressed by the uh, the level of faith that Republican voters are putting in a lot of people with very little electoral experience. Uh, I mean, Blake Masters, J.D. Vance, Mehmet Oz, Herschel Walker. You know, the, the, this is a real series of bets on people. And obviously, you could extend that to Colorado and to New Hampshire, New Hampshire, uh, you could have, you know, a, a real lineup of people who have ba- essentially never won an election in their lives. Uh, you have a handful of exceptions to that. Adam Laxalt, obviously, is somebody who kind of united the rare unification of the club for growth 
Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell. I don't know how you pull that off, <laughs> but he did. Uh, and uh, and you have Eric Schmidt, who essentially pulled off the same thing just because everybody hated Eric Greitens as being the the opposition to that. But, you know, most of these people have no electoral experience. And you also have, you know, a number of replacement candidates. We'll talk about them, I, I guess, in a second, uh, you know, for other uh, positions that also have limited electoral experience uh, in races that are not considered battleground. What do you think about Republican voters betting so much on these outsider candidates who haven't shown the proficiency to win? You know, I think it is a risk. Um, it's not just a proficiency to win, it's a proficiency to perform. That you, there is a skill to being in politics. And it's one that can't simply be masked over by the ability to raise money. And it's the ability to think quickly. It's the ability to know how to build coalitions. It's the ability, frankly, to nuance things. That mm -hmm. there are times when a base will want a full-throated affirmation of something when it's not in the political interest of the candidate to do so because the base is out of step with center, the center of public opinion. That's true on the Democratic side as well as the Republican side. I don't want to cast aspersions on one side, uh, but so I think what it shows, and it's, is that there is a very large number of Republican primary voters in most places of plurality that really are angry about the entire political system. Mm -hmm. We saw in 2020, uh, a number of people, uh, often women, uh, who were wealthy, spending their way to congressional primaries over Club for Growth endorsed candidates who had, were prior uh, elected officials. You know, Dana, Diana Harshbarger in Tennessee One and Lisa McLean in uh, Michigan 10. Marjorie Taylor Greene was such a person, although the club was, she did not run against the state legislator and the club wasn't involved. Um, the angry outsider is a person who has a very deep appeal to a segment, again, often a plurality of Republican voters. And that's a massive risk in a state that is finely balanced. That's a swing state. You can get away with it in a safe seat because you only really need to win one election, your first primary. Um, unless you're Madison Cawthorn and then you're a cluster for the next two years. <laughs> well, he had some other issues involved there. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's my point. Is... <laughs> um, but, so, um, so Henry, you know, so, no, so, no, finish your thought. Yeah. So yes, it's, it's a big risk. Um, and we'll see how they perform. I think this is another test of the MAGA slash Trump theory of the electorate that if people, I wrote a column, highlighting seven of these candidates in, in swing states. I think if only one or two of them win, that'll be something that the professional politicians will effectively begin to set, talk about and say, look, there's a limit to the appeal. You know, mm -hmm. you, that we actually need, some of the tried and true actually matters to win elections because every election isn't a presidential race where you can lose the popular vote but get an inside straight in the electoral college. Most races, you actually need a plurality to win. And it may be that this angry outsider motif gets you close but no cigar. A conventional wisdom point is that a defective gubernatorial nominee drags down the Senate nominee. 
So that's true this cycle in terms of Cary Lake and Blake Masters in Arizona, uh, in Pennsylvania with perhaps uh, Dr. Oz and uh, Dave Mastriano. Uh, but then in Georgia, you have kind of the reverse situation where, you know, Brian Kemp being as popular as he is, uh, especially against Stacey Abrams, who looks just like a flailing candidate, um, despite being a uh, incumbent governor, <laughs> knock on wood, um, <laughs> uh, uh, versus, uh, you know, a situation with uh, Herschel Walker against Raphael Warnock, who seems like a very capable candidate, but may be dragged down by his own gubernatorial situation. How much is that actually true? And how much of it is a media narrative? I think it's mainly a media narrative. Um, I think generally what we see is that Senate races uh, are becoming increasingly partisan. Uh, gubernatorial races, less so. Uh, you've got the cases of the Republican who wins in deep blue states and the Democrat who wins in deep red states. But Senate campaigns have tended to be extremely partisan over the last three or four cycles. And so the idea that a gubernatorial candidate has down ballot effect, when in fact what we seem to see is the opposite, that the gubernatorial candidate slightly rises above the tides and whirlpools of partisanship, strikes me as a media narrative. And one, not coincidentally, that is brought up at a time when it can advantage Democrats if it takes hold. One of the things that really uh, sticks out to me about this cycle is that we we basically stopped paying attention to the House. We've written it off. Everybody has sort of assumed that you know Republicans are going to take this. They're going to be a ton of new faces. But are we underrating how much of a sea change that is politically? It seems to me like this is the end of essentially a twenty five year period of leadership in the house generationally that is about to exit the stage, which seems to me to be an enormous political event that most people are just not appreciating in terms of how many older members are headed for the exits. And, you know, you, you saw, I mean, that, that, you know, the debates between Maloney and Nadler and, you know, that kind of thing, you know, happening. And it's just like all these people, they, they're all headed for the exits in terms of the, relevance and power that they've wielded, you know, since before the Clinton impeachment. That's really an excellent point that I hadn't considered is that whether it is a narrow margin or a significant margin, the Republicans will almost certainly control the House. Let's put it this way. If the Republicans don't pick up the four or five seats, depending how you count it, uh, needed to win control of the House, it would be only the second or third time since the Great Depression that the party out of power had not picked up enough seats to overcome a margin that small. So I think we're really looking at that, but I had not really considered that. Yeah, you're right. It's really not plausible that this group of gerontocrats, the 75 to 80 something year old Democrats, who have dominated their caucus for so long, it's not plausible to think that they will come back in two years and, and, and run things. That even if the Democrats came back in two years, it's just not plausible that Nancy Pelosi would start a term of speakership at the age mm -hmm. of 84 uh, and so forth all the way down the line. And yeah, so that means 
not only a sea change for the Republicans, because I believe McCarthy, you know, um, McCarthy's younger than I am, and I'm in the baby boom generation. So I believe McCarthy will be the first non baby He is a Gen Xer, yeah. Yeah. So he'll be the first non baby boomer to run the house. And almost certainly, if even if he were to completely flail and lose, uh, the Democrat who succeeded him would be also a non-baby boomer. So, yeah, I think uh, we are dramatically underrating that because baby boom expectations and baby boom life experiences have really held on longer than demographically they ought to. Mm-hmm. Uh, both in the and you see that with Trump and Biden as well, and with McConnell that they're going to be. It lasts the all the way until quickly. it lasts all the way until that uh, that halftime performance where you know it's Eminem and it's nostalgia. <laughs> 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 um, so uh, with the time we have left, I have to ask you this: I know you are a student not just of American elections, Henry, but of elections uh, over overall all around the world. I wonder if you could express for us some of the dynamics that you see happening, particularly in the electoral experience in Europe. And then I would also like your perspective on the uh, and the current Tory leadership battle that is that is happening. Um, it should be resolved by the time that I have to go up and, and have uh, dinner with Andrew Neal in a week. Um, but I'm 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 curious as to your perspective uh, on the lessons to take away from the dynamics uh, in Europe uh, and uh, in the UK. Yeah, generally, what we're seeing in Europe is uh, the sort of thing we're seeing here, which is. The center is uh, not holding. Um, the old divisions are giving way to new divisions uh, of populism's left and right. Uh, it is almost a certainty you know, that we could see a massive reversal in the polls, but the fact is the center-right coalition in Italy has led in the polls for virtually the entirety of the last four, uh, four years. And uh, the only question was which populist would be elected in the next election, would it be the uh, blue collar populist or the more socially conservative populist? So it looks like it's going to be Georgia Maloney from the Brothers of Italy, party that got 4% of the vote in 2018 is getting a, a quarter of the vote this time. And I suspect slightly more than that because populist parties tend to underpoll. You know, this is going to be a sea change that the fourth largest economy in the EU is going to be. Uh, held by a social, is going to be run by a, a socially conservative populist um, who I, will ultimately, I think, understand that she needs to move her economy away from the EU embrace in order to revitalize Italian growth. Meanwhile, in Ireland, which is, has been held up as one of the economic success stories, uh, the party that's been leading in the polls there for the last couple of years, getting to the point where they can almost expect a majority in the next election, is Sinn Féin. Yes, that Sinn Féin, which in its non-terrorist uh, iteration is a super left-wing populist nationalist party. So uh, everything we're seeing here is taking place in the rest of the world. And a lot of what we're seeing here, which is the continued belief that the center can hold and that there's this grand alliance of center-left and center-right, um, is when you see it happen in Europe, it doesn't stem the tide. Mm-hmm. You, you, you have to deal with the issues that populists want dealt with. And if you fail to deal with them, populism grows. QED. 
So with respect to the British election, uh, the Tory leadership election, you know, the common wisdom is that it's uh, all but over. Liz Truss will be coronated on September 5th. Um, you know, that, that and apparently her uh, reading today is in my daily run up of British news. And apparently her staff is beginning to think about policy initiatives and staff and cabinet and so forth. I have uh, two views of trust, one positive and one negative. The positive side is that what the Tory party needs is a breath of fresh air. And uh, no. being a... Being... <laughs> no, go ahead, please continue. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I would prefer it from a different perspective, you know, which is I think that what the Tory party needs to do is lean into the realignment, become more of a populist conservative party. The positive case for Liz Truss is this is a person who understands that decisive action is necessary, that she's going to have new ministers, a new approach. She's going to be more direct, more forthright, um, and that in comparison to um, uh, not necessarily, you know, Boris Johnson was not an effective prime minister. David Cameron and Theresa May were old guard people that she might look to be a breath of fresh air. The negative, I would say, is that she's betting the house on uh, a revitalization of the old pre-populist conservative wing of the, yes. of the Tory party. And I suspect that's not going to work. I concur. Uh, I concur with that analysis. I think. I think. Yeah. You're right about that. Yes. So, so you know, my view is the likeliest outcome is short burst. Eventually, people are going to. You know, she will easily be able to be characterized as um, uh, Thatcher's mini me. Uh, with that, you know, one forgets that it took Thatcher three years and a successful war to actually be approved by the British people. The first three years were really, really difficult for her. Mm -hmm. um, and Liz Truss doesn't have three years until the next general election. She has a little <laughs> over two. So I think, uh, you know, I think it's likelier that Keir Starmer, the labor leader, will be the next prime minister, perhaps even with the majority government, because I can see a frustrated British electorate saying, let's give this, uh, th let's give this one a go, um, rather than giving them a hung parliament. Yeah. And Henry, I wish I, I, I wish I did not agree with you as so often, I must say, I wish I did not agree <laughs> with Henry, but he is correct. Um, uh, I, I have a final question for you, a very important question. What uh, lessons should America take from uh, Finland's Prime Minister uh, Sanna Marin and her approach to both partying uh, and and joining NATO. Um, well, from a serious perspective, look, uh, Sanna Marin is uh, somebody who is so left wing she addresses or used to address members of the Social Democratic Party as comrade, mm -hmm. and she led her government into NATO. I think that tells you how deeply. Europeans are scared of the Russians. Yes. That if you can't, you know, you hear a lot on the right, oh, the Russians are nothing to worry about. This is a border dispute in Ukraine. I've been to Europe a few times. I know how the Europeans think and act. They're scared witless. And you can put another word in. <laughs> yes, <that>. yes. <laughs> so I think if, if Comrade Marine, uh, Marin has decided to do this, you know, that just shows how serious this is. And with respect to the approach to partying, um, look, we talked about generational change. Um, she's the generation behind Gen X. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, you know, 
one thing that is a rising trend left, mainly on the left, but also on the right, is the super young prime minister. You know, Sebastian Kurz, who is no longer chancellor of Austria, but was for a couple of years until he had to step down because of a scandal, um, saved the, you know, before he was the 31 year old person who was gonna save the Austrian People's Party, the conservative party there, they were mired at around 20% of the polls. He brought them up to close to 40%, and now they're back at 20%. In a populist age, youth conveys change. Mm -hmm. And that makes AOC a very- It does, that, that is exactly what I'm thinking of this in terms of the lens, yes. It's, yeah, uh, no, it's, I'm just waiting for President AOC and Prime Minister Marin to have great dance-offs. I keep I keep bringing this up to my friends, and they all hate me for it. <laughs> well, I wrote a column uh, April. Uh, it, it happened to be on April 1st, so people say it's my April Fool's Day column. But it wasn't an April Fool's Day column. It was um, the notes from, uh, you know, how did, uh, as we approach, it's as it's January 20th, 2025, how, you know, how did, uh, president AOC become the mm -hmm. youngest president in American history, and the answer is a by you know as I said two years ago you know a failed Biden administration which leads to a successful interprimary challenge and she gets matched up against somebody who is basically warned over republicanism, and the, both the populace and the change element overwhelm that and she gets elected and I don't think that's I wouldn't bet on it but I wouldn't. Bet it, it, it's it not right it's now, not a either. good bet but it is a not crazy long shot bet which is uh it, which is, it is better than going down to the track and putting your money on Beetleball. <laughs> henry olson thank you so much for taking the time to join me today thanks for having me ben more of the ben dominish podcast right after this i wanted to bring forward one more element that i think is important uh, coming out of our uh, conversation with Henry, and that's an understanding of the dynamics of how much donor inclination plays within the electoral politics of the moment. Obviously, small dollar donations, big donor donations are different. They run in different tracks. So you can have billionaires who come in and back people to the tune of millions of dollars with super PACs. And then you have small dollar donors who are able to elevate people regardless of whether they have that top-down uh, you know, corporate backing or whether they have their own money to play with. One of the things that's happening right now is that small-dollar donors on the Republican side are increasingly flowing toward former President Trump and his own super PAC. What that means is they are not giving to the type of Senate campaigns that they might be giving to traditionally. It's raising a lot of the problems for the Senate candidates that we discussed, meaning that, you know, maybe J.D. Vance would have seen a lot of flow of people who were supporting him in Ohio against Tim Ryan. Instead, he was unable to raise a significant amount of money. He raised essentially the amount of money you would raise for a pretty safe House seat as opposed to what you would have in a competitive Senate election. So the takeaway for this, from my perspective, really is that Donald Trump needs to step up. If he wants to be the leader of the Republican Party, not just someone who criticizes it, but someone who is the new establishment, he should put his money where his mouth is. He's endorsed these guys. He's gotten them to the point where they are the nominees across the country. But if they all go down in November to losing, especially in a year when a lot of Republicans are expected to win, 
that's going to also be something that is ascribed to him and to an inability on his part of being willing to part with money that is flowing into his coffers. Now, look, I don't think Trump is an idiot when it comes to these type of calculations. I've never misjudged him in terms of being a dumb guy, but I do think that he is someone who may make a miscalculation based on the fact that so many traditional political advisors have been wrong. As, as Henry said in our interview, if he takes away from that, that that means that he doesn't have to give any money to these people, he may end up in November looking at a new Senate majority, potentially from the Republican Party, where a lot of the people who got elected don't owe him much at all. And that would be something that would be very dangerous for the future and potentially create new splits within the Republican Party and the Republican coalition that we haven't even begun to analyze. I'm Ben Domenech. You are listening to the Ben Domenech podcast brought to you by Fox News. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.